0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China-Asia program here at IWP. For those who are new to IWP, we are a graduate school of national security, intelligence and international affairs. And we have seven master's programs, including two online programs. One doctoral program, which is called Doctor of Statecraft and National Security. And we have 18 uh, certificates of graduate study as well as a continuing education program. So if you're interested in learning um, you know, one of our um, programs, feel free to come talk to me um, at the uh, conclusion of the event. And also, if you'd like to support the work of IWP, uh, please go to www.iwp.edu donate. And today, um, as part of the Asia Initiative Lecture Series, we have Mr. Bruce Cleaner, who will be presenting a lecture on the North Korean threat and um, allied policy options. Mr. Bruce Cleaner specializes in Korean and Japanese affairs as a senior research fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. Mr. Cleaner's analysis and writing about North Korea, South Korea, and Japan, as well as related issues, are informed by his 20 years of service at the CIA as well as the DIA. Mr. Kleiner, who joined Heritage in 2007, has testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He's also a frequent commentator in US and foreign policy (coughs) media. His articles and commentary have appeared in major American and foreign publications, and he's a regular guest on broadcast and cable news outlets. He's a regular uh, contributor to the international and security uh, sections of the Daily Signal. From 1996 to 2001, Mr. Cleaner was CIA's Deputy Division Chief for Korea, responsible for the analysis of political, military, economic, and leadership issues for the President of the United States and other senior US policymakers. In 1993 to 1994, he was the chief of the CIA's Korea branch, which analyzed Military development during a nuclear crisis with North Korea. Mr. Klinger, thank you very much for having us today, and we look forward to your presentation.
1: All right. I can't keep this thing. There you go. There you go. All right. right, Well, thanks very much. Um, I cover, as we heard, uh, North and South Korea and Japan, which is sort of geographically a, a small part of the world, but strategically very important, uh, and has been very busy, or seems to always be busy, but uh, particularly more recently. Last year we had uh, North Korea do a record number of missile launches, uh, 70 or more, depending on how you count them. Uh, as, and then also Japan issued uh, three very important national security documents, the first national security strategy in a, in a decade, Uh, And then also, President Yoon issued South Korea's first Indo-Pacific strategy last month. So things have been uh, quite busy. What I thought I'd talk about uh, is the North Korean threat, uh, sort of the nuclear, the missile, the cyber, and President Yoon Seok-yoo's policies, which have really uh, brought Korea back into alignment with the United States. Also talk about President Biden's North Korea strategy. and then uh, what to do, which would be policy recommendations. So it's a lot to cover. So I'll, I may sort of run across the wave wavetops, uh, but we can go into depth uh, during Q&A, which is what I'm looking forward to. Uh, and I look forward to good questions. And, and uh, as we are talking about my testimony, I do remember back when I was at, still at CIA and testifying before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and intelligence is the key word here. Um, We were about 45 minutes into the briefing, three of us, we were very brilliant, very deep analysis, and uh, one of the congressmen interrupted me, and he said, excuse me, son, which is the bad one, North or South Korea? (laughs) And and I I did wanna say something brutally honest, but remembering where our funding came from, I just replied, well, (laughs) sir, that would be the North. Okay, son, you can continue. So the the bar is pretty low for, for good questions from the audience. Um, looking at the, the North Korean threat, I mean, it's, I'm not going to go in all the nomenclature and range rings or the missiles, um, but the, it's, it's bad. It's very bad, and it's getting worse. Um, first of all, on the nuclear weapons, how many nukes do they have? Well, it's very hard, even when I was at CIA and access to you know, classified intelligence sources, to have an accurate number. You're making really a series of estimated guesses. Uh, how much fissile material do they have? You know, what, how efficient are they in turning that into weapons, et cetera? Um, so when we would be asked, how many weapons do they have, we'd, we'd often give them what we call the CIA salute. You, know, you kind of give it your, your best guess. Well, in 2017, there were some leaked CIA and DIA documents that said there was an estimate of 30 to 60 nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons or you know, weapons worth of fissile material with the capacity of producing 5 to 12 nuclear weapons a year from, from that point on. Um, just recently, the uh, South Korean military think tank, Kaida, uh, estimated they have 90 weapons or weapons worth. And I was part of a RAND study last year where, sort of by extrapolating, they could have 200 nuclear weapons by 2027. So things are very, very dire. Um, they have done six nuclear tests. The last one back in 2017 was at least 200 kilotons, perhaps more. And just to, to get a sense of that size, the, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki weapons were 15 to 20. And so North Korea did a at least 200 kilotons. Uh, so it shows that not only do they have atomic weapons, they have hydrogen bombs or thermonuclear weapons. Um, And we've been hearing almost for a year now from both Washington and Seoul that they're expecting a seventh nuclear test. Uh, They've been saying since March it's imminent. Well, obviously not too imminent if it's taken almost a year. Um, And the thing that's concerning there is it's likely to be a small explosion, which some may just say, well, it's much smaller than the other ones, it's uh, not a big deal. Well, what they're working on, and North Korea has announced they've been working on, is a new generation of tactical nuclear warheads that may be small enough for battlefield use, uh, and they have the missiles, which I'll talk about in a sec, to deliver these. So, what you know, it may be a very small test, maybe even several, uh, in an underground uh, test site that they have, um, and that'll certainly get our attention, and it'll be very worrisome because even though it's small, it's a new generation. Uh, of weapons that they can deploy on a, a large number of short and medium range missiles that they have. Um, now looking at the, the missiles themselves, uh, first of all, from the US point of view, we're most interested or most worried about ICBMs. Uh, and they have several that they have successfully tested. Back in 2017, uh, they tested three, three times two different systems. Uh, and what they've been doing often with their missile launches is they fire them almost straight up, very high, very lofted trajectory, so as not to fly over surrounding countries, which would be Japan. Um, but if you do the extrapolation, if you stretched it out to a normal uh, sort of battle trajectory, they can, the, the first one could range about half of the continental U.S., and then the second one that they tested could go to Florida and beyond. So the entire continental United States is subject to attack by North Korean nuclear weapons. Um, and then just uh, in October of 2020, they paraded and then successfully tested uh, last year uh, what's called the Hwasong-17. It's also known as the monster ICBM. It's the world's largest road mobile ICBM. It's assessed to probably have three to four warheads. Uh, the other ones all have have one. And what's worrisome is it, uh that they can have multiple warheads on this missile. And also, they showed that they can now indigenously produce these very large transporter erector launchers. Uh, Up until then, they were limited by eight very large logging trucks that they had bought from China, which they converted to carry a set of very large logs, very large missiles. And they kept adding axles as they kept coming up with new ICBMs. Well, at at a parade back in 2020 and then again more recently in uh, this month, They've shown that they can indigenously produce these. And what they did is they, uh, now they've shown in the last parade 11 or 12 of these Hwasong-17s. So that's a lot of warheads. Uh, and they also displayed a what we think is a solid fuel ICBM, probably still a prototype. But we only have 44 ground-based interceptors based in Alaska and California to protect the American homeland. And the US has said we are likely to uh, target several, perhaps four, at each incoming warhead. So if they've got 11 or 12 of these uh, Hwasong-17s, plus they have an earlier Hwasong-15 and 14, uh, you do the math, they could overwhelm our limited number of missile uh, interceptors. And then with this new uh, solid fuel, and uh, the advantage of a solid fuel is it, it it doesn't have to be fueled. It's already fueled at the production factory with the liquid fuel, which the other ICBMs are. Uh, maybe they can fuel them, you know, in a road tunnel or or in a facility, or they may have to go out into the field, erect it, and then it can take quite some time to fuel it, which gives us time to identify it and target it. The solid fuel, you can put it out there and, and fire it fairly quickly. So um, it, it's very concerning the number of, of warheads they have, the number of ICBMs they have, as well as now these more launchers. And the launchers are important because now they can send more missiles out in the field without having to come back and, and reload. So it's it's very worrisome. Now, below the ICBM range, they, they have lots of short range, medium range, intermediate range missiles, uh, as well as submarine launch ballistic missiles. And so they can target. Are, are very important bases in Guam, uh, as well as the entire Japanese archipelago, the entire South Korean nation, uh, and in the last oh, four or five years, they've revealed at least a dozen or more new uh, sort of short-range and medium-range missiles. Uh, each one more capable than its predecessor. They're mobile, um, and not only road-mobile with with on trucks or erector launchers. Uh, they've also demonstrated a train-launched uh, missile, and then more recently, uh, a missile that they launched from under a reservoir lake. Uh, so they have the submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and now this underwater technology, which they've said they could put in kind of every lake and, or reservoir in North Korea, which makes targeting even more difficult. So uh, they've, I won't go into all the nomenclature, but they have lots of these short and medium-range The intermediate range, not only uh, what's called a Hwasong 12, but a a newer, more capable variant. So they're mobile. They're uh, very, uh, they're uh, very qualified or whatever. Improved over their predecessors. Uh, Some have maneuverable warheads, which will enable them to evade ballistic missile defenses. So they have hypersonics, which can fly low and fast, uh, and they also have maneuverable warheads, which can kind of evade missile interceptors. So all of it is very, very worrisome. They can uh, target all of our forces in South Korea and, and Japan. Obviously, the South Korean and Japanese forces, uh, as well as cities. Um, <clears throat> the uh, last year, they released a, a new nuclear doctrine, which the media depicted it a lot of, of you know, <clears throat> drastically different. If you've been following North Korea for a while, it, it was really not that different from what they've been saying for the last 10 years. Um, But what they made very clear is by sort of codifying their statements in a new law, uh, is that the the weapons are not only for deterrence or a retaliatory to what they would see as a US or South Korean attack, um, but also for offensive purposes, including preemptive attack. And they identified a number of scenarios where they may uh, launch first. Even if they perceive or misperceive uh, preparations for an attack on North Korea, and you know because they have very poor reconnaissance capabilities, uh, the, the concern is not so much that Kim Jong Un, the leader, is going to wake up someday and say, "Okay, let me launch a nuclear attack on South Korea." It's we're more concerned is that it could either be uh, sort of inadvertent escalation or misinterpretation. So when we do, say, military exercises, and they list a eight-page you know, statement of you know, we're very worried this shows the Americans are just about to attack us. Why else would they have aircraft carriers, et cetera, in the region? Are they just saying that to try to blame us for raising tensions, which we do, we do those exercises in response to their actions? Or do they really perceive that we are about to attack, even though we're not? Uh, would they push the button? Uh, based on a, a misinterpretation of, of actions. Um, or if there's some incident, say, along the, mili- the, the demilitarized zone and it sort of escalates back and forth, we could be in a major conflict, again, based almost on a mistake. Um, and could that be possible? Sure. Uh, what happened uh, back in, I believe, it was 2015, uh, North Korean special forces infiltrated across the uh into the across the demilitarized zone, planted some landmines, which injured two South Korean soldiers. Uh, South Korea retaliated by putting back into place these loudspeakers, which had uh, anti-regime propaganda. North Korea launched 13 artillery shells against these loudspeakers, um, didn't hurt anyone. And so South Korea said, well, under their, their then policy, they had a three for one retaliation. So they decided, well. We'll send 39 artillery shells in response. And since no one was hurt, we'll we'll just pick an empty field and send 39 shells. Later, the UN command uh, did a a study and realized there were no 13 incoming artillery shells. Uh, Older South Korean counter-battery radar had misinterpreted a lightning storm in the region as 13 incoming artillery shells. So the North Koreans having not done anything, might have said, these crazy South Koreans just launched 39 shells for no reason. What if they had retaliated? You could have had this tit for tat escalation. Um, anyway, so if it happens on the DMZ or, or conflicts in the West Sea, as, as often happened, uh, you could have kind of this inadvertent stumbling into a major war, including with nuclear weapons. Um, so, as I said, with with this new doctrine, what it does is it it sort of lowers the bar for when North Korea may use nuclear weapons. They identified not only would they perhaps initiate a preemptive attack uh, if they perceived a U.S. or South Korean preparations for a nuclear attack, uh, but even a conventional attack. So it, it's you know the danger is inadvertent escalation. Now, uh, North Korean cyber doesn't get as much attention as their nuclear weapons and their uh, missiles, but they are very capable. Uh, They are, according to US intelligence, perhaps one of the top three or four nations in the world capable of cyber attacks. And I remember back in 2014 doing interviews uh, when they did the attack against Sony Pictures, if you may have heard about it. And what they were doing was cyber hacking Sony because they were about to release a, a comedy called The Interview uh, with Seth Rogen and I forgot the other actor, but it, it made fun of their leader, Kim Jong un, which they take very seriously. So they uh, hacked into Sony, did a lot of damage. They uh, also threatened 9 um, 11 style attacks against any movie theater in the US that released this movie. So Sony didn't release the movie except uh, online. Um, and so I remember doing interviews where inevitably they would put the Pretty famous nighttime satellite imagery photo behind me where you see South Korea and Japan and China ablaze with lights and very few lights except in the capital of Pyongyang. And they're saying, look, these guys can't even keep the lights on. How can they do something as sophisticated as a cyber attack? Well, they can. Um, and so what I've no- what I noticed is when I did a, a study of cyber about a year ago of uh, North Korea, They seem to have started their cyber attacks in 2007 and had gone through what I identified as as six different phases. So initially it was sort of espionage or disruptive activities. Uh, They got into the South Korean Ministry of Defense. They got into US Forces Korea. They got access to at least part of our war plan, which is a response to a major North Korean attack on us. They've gotten into South Korean defense contractors. Uh, and stolen the plans for parts of their aircraft, missiles, et cetera. Um, they've also gotten into civilian nuclear power plants in South Korea and India, uh, and they they targeted uh, U.S. government uh, systems as well as South Korean. The the second phase was the what I call cyber terrorism. Not only the Sony hack, but anything that was perceived to be a, a threat against uh, the regime or or even just the Uh, anything that was insulting. So after the Sony hack that uh, that Sony pulled it off uh, any kind of distribution in theaters, uh, there were two other projects that were shelved. BBC was going to do a TV series uh, focused on North Korea. They canceled it. Uh, There was also going to be a comedy movie with Steve Carroll. They canceled that out of fear of what North Korea might do. Um, They also did a lot of ransomware attacks. Uh, they had one that called WannaCry, where uh, it was worldwide, but uh, in the UK, it uh, really affected their national health system. About half of their uh, hospitals were affected. The, they weren't able to uh, send out ambulances because the computer system was down, and it was all sort of a, we'll, we'll release your computers if you pay us money. Um, a, th- a third phase was cyber bank robbery. And sort of the very famous case was uh, they were able to get $81 million from the Central Bank of Bangladesh, uh, including having uh, five of these bank transfer statements uh, that were approved by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And they uh, would have gotten away with a billion dollars if someone hadn't noticed some typos in some of the other uh, bank transfer requests. And what they did is, uh, as they often do, is they'll do what's called social engineering attacks, where it's, hey, employee of the Bank of Bangladesh, we think you'd be a good addition to our bank. Maybe you could come work for us. We'll have some exchanges, some emails. We'll send you a LinkedIn account, which looks very legitimate. Some cases, they'll have interviews uh, virtually in in perfect English. And by about the fifth or sixth email, oh, just click on this link. Well, then now they're in that person's computer. Uh, and then they, over an 18-month period, they got access to more and more secure computer systems of the Bank of Bangladesh. And then when they did the bank robbery, they timed it so that there was a three-day holiday in Bangladesh, a three-day holiday in New York. Uh, they, the way the Bank of Bangladesh was doing things is every time there was a bank transfer, it printed out a piece of paper, uh, and they turned that off so that when the Bank of Bangladesh employees came in after three days, and they're like, well, the the printer box is empty. Something must be wrong. Well, then when they discovered it was happening, they're calling New York, which is on a three-day holiday. So uh, not only did they do that, they had other things like ATM things, where they had mules, as they called them. They had uh, 30 different countries. They had people just feeding in ATM cards, and they got several million dollars from that. Uh, They're now estimated as, as. Well, let me get to the second, the next phase, which is as banks started to put in place higher security, they shifted to cryptocurrency and crypto exchanges. And they're getting probably a billion dollars a year or more from crypto exchanges. Uh, They've had some hits which were $600 million or so. Um, And then the the next phase after that was uh, decentralized financial uh, finance platforms or DEFIs. So they keep shifting and they're, they're making money from this, which then goes into their nuclear and missile programs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then sort of the sixth phase was uh, pharmaceuticals. So when COVID first happened, they were getting into uh, Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies trying to get uh, the, the vaccine or, or vaccine information. So what they've done is, it, and even when they move to a new phase, it doesn't mean they stopped the other phases they're sort of they keep doing all of them and they and they adapt so as I said they're getting a billion dollars perhaps more a year from these crypto crimes which is a lot more lucrative and a lot less risky than what they used to do with crimes which was counterfeiting our currency uh, as well as counterfeit pharmaceuticals and insurance scams and and others Uh, so it's very lucrative for them it's hard to identify North Korea as the target Or, or as the perpetrator, or even if we, when we do, it's sort of hard to do anything against them. Um, So, you know, when someone might say, "Well, who's going to fall for these uh, social engineering things?" Uh, They impersonated a classmate of mine from the National War College. They uh, identified that he writes an annual Christmas letter to the other folks in our homeroom. Uh, You know, hey guys, it's Ernie. Uh, sorry, it took so long to do the annual letter, you know, hope everyone's doing okay, you know, here, clicked on it My screen went white and they had changed his, the uh, his return address by one digit uh, And so they got into my system uh, another colleague of mine at Heritage Foundation uh, A South Korean think tank reached out to her. Hey, you know, could you write a 10,000 word article for us? We'll pay you 1,200 bucks. Okay went back and forth on editing and then we got uh contacted by this outside computer firm, which works with a lot of uh, think tanks, as well as the FBI and others, said, hey, this uh, report's being used in phishing attacks against other Korea watchers. So it hasn't even been published. So what was the email address? She told him, that's North Korea. Was it this name and this South Korean think tank? Yeah, that's North Korea. So we're like, we don't even do anything classified at our building. And yet they still go after us. There's a, there's a whole program called Baby Shark, which is one of the North Korean cyber groups will go after think tankers. They also go after uh, retired foreign officer, foreign service officers from Korea and the US, et cetera. So uh, you know, I guess the idea is if they get in our computer, then it'll be, you know, hey, State Department person, it's Bruce. I've just written another brilliant report. Please click on the link and read it. And then you're in the State Department system. Um, so anyway, they, they do it for getting information or uh, bank robbery, whatever. Now, the, the scary thing is they've been very successful in all of these endeavors. What if they were to do it all at once during a crisis? If they, were, they said they can spook our uh, JDAMs or our guided missiles, uh, they've gotten into very secure military websites and computer systems, even those that weren't connected to the internet. Um, So what if they were to do that? Uh, The South Korean intelligence service has warned that um, they've gotten into systems which control the speed of trains in South Korea. Uh, They've gotten into systems that are like uh, oil refineries, oil pipelines, uh, other infrastructure targets. So what if they were to hit South Korea or US targets all at once during a crisis or run up to a crisis? On the financial side, not only stealing money, But what if they did so many fraudulent transactions that people lost confidence in the international financial system? So as as people have said, it could be a cyber uh, Pearl Harbor. Now, looking at um, okay, what is the US policy, I I think it's important first to do what I I say, a, a couple foundational statements. No US administration or president has a monopoly on good or bad ideas when it comes to North Korea policy. So, if you criticize one administration, it doesn't mean you like the other political party. Uh, during my time at Heritage, I've, I've criticized and praised, you know, uh, Obama, Bush, Obama, Trump, and and Biden. Um, so you you have a mixture of analysts and ideologues at any think tank. I'm an analyst, twenty years of training in the intelligence community. So, um, you know, we can disagree on policy, but I think you have to be at least true to yourself. If you think a policy is good, it doesn't matter if the person is a Republican or a a Democrat. Um, Also, North Korea has been relentlessly pursuing nuclear and missile capabilities since the 1960s. It's not because of any particular US administration. Uh, And they they proceed in fits and starts. So sometimes there's a lot of progress. Other times it's seemingly no progress until all of a sudden we're surprised by something. And it's kind of like, to me, the idea of a, of a submarine. It surfaces, and it's, it's traveled 500 miles. Like, well, why wasn't I informed this enemy sub can go 500 miles an hour, or 500 miles? And then it goes below the surface, and then nothing happens for some time. And everyone says, oh, yeah, the, the range of that submarine is 500 miles. Well, then later, it, it surfaces again at 1,000 miles. And everyone's surprised, because everyone told me it could only go 500 miles. So there's sort of this straight-line analysis of... Uh, you know, well, but everyone told me they could only do this. Well, they're continuing to make progress. Um, and so even if they're not doing launches or things, it's they're working on the systems. And then when they all of a sudden do a lot of launches, someone may blame the administration in office. Like, well, no, they've been working on that for some time. So I think it's it's important to to do that. Also on uh, diplomatic uh, engagement, we've tried. and. Uh, We've had eight international agreements with North Korea, four of which they promised never to build nuclear weapons, they cheated on each of those, and then four subsequent uh, agreements where they promised to give up what they promised never to build, those all failed. So we have tried diplomacy, that's not to say we don't keep trying, um, but hopefully we've learned a few lessons um, from the the past. And and the final, what I call a foundational statement, is there's often this misused, Paradigm of a false binary choice of, well, should we use diplomacy or pressure and sanctions? Well, they use both along with a lot of other instruments of national power. It's kind of like saying, well, should you use a hammer or a screwdriver to build a house? Well, both. Sometimes one is more appropriate, sometimes the other, but you use all of those uh, along with other tools. So we need diplomacy and information operations, military deterrence and defense. Uh, economic pressure and incentives, as well as some other issues. So, you know, too often you hear, I think, well, sanctions have never worked. You know, let's abandon them and let's uh, try something new like diplomacy. Well, as I said, we've had eight international agreements. The two Koreas have 253 inter uh, Korean agreements. That didn't moderate North Korean behavior. Again, not to say we don't keep trying, um, but don't apply a higher standard to t- sanctions than diplomacy. Uh, also, sanctions or law enforcement measures have a number of objectives. So it's, you know, I'd, I'd say there are five. One is uh, you, you're enforcing the law, U.S. laws against financial crimes, uh, UN resolutions against North Korean military or nuclear missile capability missile actions, violations of previous UN resolutions. Uh, you're imposing a penalty when someone breaks the law. You rob a bank, you go to the, you go to jail. Uh, you commit financial crimes in the US financial system, you get sanctioned or law enforcement measures. Three, it makes it harder for North Korea to import items they need for their uh, illegal nuclear missile programs, including money from illicit activities. Four, it makes it harder for them to proliferate technology or or weapons. And five, along with all the other tools, uh, you're trying to alter their behavior. Um, So where are we with, with Biden? Uh, When about a year after they came into office, so about a year ago, they revealed to some degree their North Korea policy. Uh, There wasn't a lot of details as to sort of what would be the parameters of a nuclear agreement with North Korea. And as they said, well, look, we want to reveal that to the North Korea instead of negotiating through headlines. We don't want to publish our our negotiating plans in the paper. We'd rather sit down with North Korea and, and that's part of negotiations. And since North Korea has refused to have any kind of dialogue with the U.S., South Korea, or Japan, we don't know what the parameters of an acceptable deal for Biden would be. Uh, they just they won't talk with us. Uh, the last real U.S.-North uh, Korean meeting was October of 2019 uh, under the Trump administration. So we've tried to have meetings, uh, not even negotiations, but just meetings, and they refuse. Um, so we don't really know. On the diplomacy side, other than them trying to have meetings, uh, what an agreement might look like. Um, on the uh, sort of the military side, uh, the Biden administration has gone back to a more traditional, bipartisan, longstanding U.S. Uh, view of alliances. Uh, in sen- instead of seeing them as transactional relationships, as President Trump did, uh, trying to make a profit off of our sons and daughters stationed overseas, uh, Biden goes back to the bi- bipartisan idea that alliances are in U.S. strategic interests. Uh, they serve our, our own strategic uh, purposes, stability in, in the region, et cetera. Um, and then for having forces deployed overseas, it's like having policemen walking around in a bad neighborhood trying to prevent crime rather than sitting back at headquarters, uh, eating donuts and then responding to a crime. So, uh, And also we've, uh, in the last year, we've resumed military exercises that were canceled uh, by Trump in 2018 to the great surprise of our allies and the Pentagon and the Secretary of Defense and the US Forces Korea. Uh, he didn't like them, he thought they were too expensive. Um, so for four, f- four years, uh, we degraded our allied deterrence and defense capabilities. Um, but this uh, past year, we've resumed them and also what's called rotational deployment of US strategic assets, which are, which are nuclear capable Platforms such as aircraft carriers or, or nuclear bombers, et cetera, um, and we've also stopped sort of the insulting language toward our alliances that was in the last administration. So the alliances are in much better shape right now, not only diplomatically but also militarily, than they were the last uh, four years or so. Um, you know, how about uh, the the Korean policy? Yoon Suk-yeol was uh, inaugurated in May, and he's conservative, his predecessor was, was progressive. Um, and there was a lot of strains in the US-South Korean relationship under the previous president. Uh, he had a very different view of how to approach North Korea, a very different view of, uh, you know, he's much more critical of Japan, which is our other critical ally, critically important ally in uh, Northeast Asia. Um, there's a lot of history issues between Japan and, and the Koreas. So President Moon Jae-in um, had a, what we would see as a, a overly soft, overly conciliatory approach towards North Korea, a uh, very overly aggressive approach towards Japan, a uh, very timid approach in pushing back against Chinese transgressions, either their human rights violations or uh, incursions into the uh, other territorial waters in the East and South China Sea. So Yun suk yeol came in. And we're, we're on the same page. Uh, the paragraphs are in the same order. The sentences are in the same order. Uh, he, all of his statements are really just music to our ears. All the Korea watchers were kind of giddy with excitement um, because it's uh, you know, much more in, in alignment. Um, he ended some of Moon's pushes for what we would see as a premature uh, transfer of operational control of their, of their forces. Uh, end of war declaration, et cetera. Now, with Yun, what we've seen, and you may have read about, uh, all of a sudden there's now a much stronger push in South Korea or advocacy for them going nuclear, South Korea going nuclear, uh, or putting US nuclear weapons back into Korea that were removed uh, in the 1990s. Um, The US is against that, and there's a lot of discussions going on behind the scenes. and, and I was in Korea last month and then twice in December. But it's, it's an issue that really has moved from fringe advocacy to really mainstream discussion. Uh, you know for, I don't know 10 or 10 or more years, there were some that were advocating those nuclear options. but you could really dismiss them because they didn't really represent uh, a big part of the public or uh, certainly the government. Um, so the UN administration, even though officially they're saying we have no interest in those, the, the two nuclear options, US nukes going back in or South Korea going nuke. They just want more transparency, more involvement in nuclear planning, maybe nuclear sharing. Um, and if you talk to Korean government officials, there's some differences, maybe a little bit of conditionality in um, the, the approach, uh, but it really is an issue that is sucking the air out of the room in meetings in Seoul and also increasingly in uh, in the US. but sort of other than that, and and that was also fueled by, uh, President Ewan made some statements or misstatements which were quickly corrected by his administration, Uh, senior ministers saying, well, that's actually what the president meant to say. So that's leaving uh, US government officials, US experts, sort of with the quandary of, well, is it just, is he misspeaking? It's very, uh, he has a habit of misspeaking. Uh, He was having informal press conferences where He kind of stumbled a couple times, and they canceled those. Uh, You know, highly technical issues. He doesn't have a background in in foreign policy or security policy. He was a prosecutor for his career. So is it just you know you get things wrong if you try to talk about something you're not well versed in, or is it sort of he's playing to the 71 percent of the public who advocate a South Korean nuclear weapon? or is he deliberately misspeaking in order to pressure the US to do more on nuclear planning involvement, nuclear sharing? We don't know. Uh, but it's causing a bit of, of tension right now between Washington and Seoul. Um, but other than that, we are very pleased with his approach towards North Korea. It's more conditional. He, like the US, has said, you know, we're trying to talk with North Korea. We are willing to offer big benefits, but it has to be conditional. Uh, you know, we'll do a little bit, they'll do a little bit, and we'll work towards denuclearization, which remains our objectives. Uh, it will be incrementally implemented. Um, but as long as they're not talking with us, there's nothing we can do. And uh, we also like that he is trying to improve relations with Japan, uh, trying to work through these very difficult, very contentious historic issues. Um, it's tough. But we're seeing a resumption of some of the trilateral military exercises, uh, which is, is great for all three of our countries. Um, and we're also uh, pleased that he's, he's pushing back on China to some degree. He's pledged that Korea will play a larger security role in the region, uh, the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, and we'll see how far he goes in that. He doesn't want to needlessly aggravate the dragon. Uh, so I think the Yen administration will do more uh, for capacity building or military exercises or involvement in Southeast Asia, the Pacific Islands, than his predecessors. But because they're not going to be announced as anti-China actions, it may be hard to discern how differently Yun is from his predecessors. May do, they may do more, but since it's not announced as, okay, these are the 10 anti-China things we've done this year, it may be harder to, dis- to see if he is actually different. So, uh, I've been going on quite a while. Uh, I haven't gotten to what we should do for policy, but why don't I open it up for for questions? We can get in any or any or all of those. Well, um,
0: Mr. Klingner, thank you very much for such an informative and insightful lecture. Um, before we open it up to the to the audience, I actually have a question. Sure. <laughs> as 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 I myself um, focused on North Korea during my doctoral program, and um, so. When it comes to North Korea, um, specifically in the world of foreign policy, you know, I think people tend to pay more attention to the possibility of, you know, Chinese attack against Taiwan, but how, what do you think um, the possibility of North Korea attacking the South? Um, what do you think how imminent the threat is?
1: Well, it- it's very worrisome, it's very dangerous, they have the capabilities, uh, they have the intentions in the sense that um, when Kim Jong Un came into power a decade ago, he directed his military to come up with a new war plan so that they could conquer Seoul within three days and the entire peninsula within seven. That would require them to go nuclear early as well as biological and chemical warfare. So. They have never given up on their stated policy of reunifying the peninsula uh, under their terms. So they have the capability, which is getting bigger. They have the stated intention. That said, we don't think you know, we're going to wake up tomorrow in a mm-hmm. full-scale war. And, I said, and as I said, we're kind of more afraid right now of, of stumbling into something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's debate amongst experts as to what are their intentions for having so many nuclear weapons um, they say it's because of our hostile policy that, that they they are building all these to deter us. Well, we didn't attack them for decades, even when they didn't have nuclear weapons. Um, so they ha- they're they developing more nuclear weapons than would be needed for deterrence. So does that mean they're building a cape? some would say, to invade? Others would say to coerce South Korea and Japan to do things that you know, coercive diplomacy, mm-hmm. and uh, and with the capability of, of hitting the U.S. with nuclear weapons, it might be like, okay, U.S., you don't want to get involved in this. You don't want to risk your own cities. Let us beat up on your allies. Uh, and whether South Korea and Japan would say, look, well, okay, we don't want a war, Let's maybe we can give in to, to North Korea. So, could be an attack, could be coercive diplomacy, uh, could be to have a, a greater impact in the region, or just for deterrence. So, You'll get a lot of, you know, you get three Korea watchers in the group, you'll probably get four different op- opinions. But um, it is, as we keep watching these developments above and beyond what they would need for deterrence, it, it does raise the question of, if they have 200 nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. what do they, why do they need that many? So we, we just keep, you know, it's it's easier to understand the capabilities than the intentions, mm-hmm. and intentions can change.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Hi, I'm Will. Uh, so my question has to do with the stability of the Pyongyang regi- um, regime in North Korea. Um, seeing how Kim Jong-un in his first few um, years as the Supreme Leader has um, conducted a lot of political purges, like um, uh, Hyong and Choi, for example. And I was wondering about how whether there are any vulnerabilities to um, the lo- factional loyalties or disloyalty in the RGB or SP or whatever political Politburo branches that they may have in North Korea.
1: Um- for decades, people have been saying that you know the regime, you know, could, could, the leader could could be overthrown. Um, I've kind of flippantly have said, well, if you say North Korea is stable, you're going to be right 99 times out of 100. Now you're going to be really wrong that hundredth time, but up until then, you're you're going to be right. So, uh, you know, there, over the decades, there have been r- rumors or reports of attempted coups, attempted assassinations, et cetera, um, but all three leaders have have outlived those predictions. With Kim Jong-un, you know, there were some predictions when he came into power uh, December 2010, 2011, 2011, um, that, oh, a a second dynastic succession couldn't possibly work. What I was saying is, I think the system will work. Uh, His father had had a stroke in August of 2008, and had he died then, we don't know what would have happened. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution to this day about succession. Um, had it been a sudden death, maybe there would have been a, a challenge you know, for the ring of power. We don't know. Um, but after his stroke, uh, they had three years to put into place Kim Jong-un. So when he came into power in December of 2011, um, <clears throat> There was no indication of, of resistance to that. There was not a revolutionary council as, as a ruler. Uh, you know th- That was when he was the most vulnerable. Yet within six months, he had already acquired six uh, titles, which gave him absolute control of the military, the party, and the con- and this country or the state. Um, and then he's gotten a lot more titles since then. But, uh, so he's, there's no challenge to him right now. There's no factions. Uh, really, within North Korea, uh, there's no opposition movement. There's no opposition leader that people can rally around, either in country or out of country. You know, there's no Nelson Mandela of, of North Korea. So, uh, they have very strict control over even the senior leadership. We've seen his father-in-law was executed, uh, his half brother was executed, uh, and any number of people have been purged, some permanently, and. I mean, there's always a chance someone could give him a nine millimeter headache, but uh, there are no indications that there's any challenge to his regime. So, uh, occasionally we'll see reports of, oh, he's out of visibility for six weeks. You know, mm-hmm. does that mean he's dead or something? Like, well, you know, he comes back so far every time. So, uh, there's a lot of also focus now on the daughter. You know, will the daughter, the 10-year-old daughter, be the next leader? Um, or was it the sister who everyone was sort of focused on a couple years ago? Eh, uh, I don't really, I think we need to be focused on the multi-warhead, you know, missile that can hit U.S. cities rather than the little girl standing in front of it. Um, so, you know, will it be the sister or the daughter? Could a woman be a leader in, in a male-dominated Confucian society? Uh, you know, kind of who knows? And, and it's what I've always said is, Focus on the leader today and the regime today. Uh, there's no indication that, you know, whether it's a family member or someone else is going to have any different kind of regime or any different kind of policies than the past. We've lived through uh, you know, Kim, Kim Il Sung to Kim Jong Il, where some predicted he was a Kim Jong Il was a bold economic reformer, you know, et cetera, and that didn't happen. Kim Jong Un was going to be the Swiss-educated reformer. Well, that didn't happen. So. I think the regime is going to perpetuate itself to the degree it can, and we just sort of focus on the, the regime and the ruler we have today.
0: Gentleman over there. Yeah. China's 50 times bigger than North Korea. How much influence do they have over North Korea? Because, and as follow up if you have two seconds is, do they have uh, the equivalent of a, of a uh, Patriot missile system to even stop anything from Korea, from South Korea or Japan or the United States?
1: Um, the, the North Korean Chinese relationship is, is complicated. And, and I see John is in the back, he could jump in here too. But um, there's often a, a kind of a a perception or even an assertion that China is huge. It's responsible for over 90% of North Korea's foreign trade. It it must control North Korea or certainly be able to tell it what to do. And then that leads some people to say, well, if North Korea is acting up, it's because China is telling them to act up. And they're using uh, North Korea as a second front against the US while they move on Taiwan. That's not the case. Yes, there's a huge size difference. North Korea is dependent on the the Chinese economy. Uh, But even in the heyday of the relationship back in Kim Il-sung, the grandfather's time, during the Cold War, North Korea played off the two superpowers, the Soviet Union and China, against each other uh, so that neither one had the influence over North Korea that you would have thought. Um, 5,000 years of, of Korean history Uh, 1,000 invasions makes them wary about their neighbors. Uh, Each of the three leaders have said things like, we need to be more wary of China than the US because China is closer. Um, And we've seen statements by all three leaders of, you know, basically they hate each other. Uh, There's not a lot of respect between the two countries. Now, that said, China is an ally. Um, They did obviously come to their defense in the Korean War. But even though there's a, a defense treaty Beijing has made clear to Pyongyang that sort of if they start a war, Beijing may not have to come to their defense. If the US attacks, then, then they're all in. Um, so it, it is a, it's not as simple a relationship as you might think. So um, North Korea is able to you know, prevent a lot of influence over its behavior by not only the US, Japan, South Korea when we were providing a lot of aid, but also Russia and China, um, but clearly, North Korea, China, and Russia are, you know, on one side of the fence, and the U.S. and its allies is on the other. So, um, and even when, during the COVID time, when basically all trade, all North Korean foreign trade was cut off because they were so afraid of, of COVID, they even cut off the state sponsored smuggling, mm-hmm. um, and you know that didn't. Make them, a, you know, more open to making concessions diplomatically. And your second, oh, the missiles. Um, yeah, China has a lot of, of missile defenses, uh, but they would. I mean, I don't think North Korea is about to attack China. They know it wouldn't end up, end up well. But um, and and China has acted like North Korea's lawyer in the U.N. Security Council. They've protected them. They've uh, rebuffed. You know, additional UN resolutions that the US tried, I think, 10 times last year for either presidential statements or resolutions or some kind of punitive action. And China pushed back against all of them. Um, over time, you know, the 11 resolutions we've had, which were each one incrementally stronger, um, China and Russia agreed to those because North Korea had angered them through ICBM launches or nuclear tests to the degree that they felt they had to punish North Korea to some degree. And they would implement the sanctions for three or four months, then they would turn a blind eye. Then they would allow uh, violations to occur with Chinese entities on Chinese soil, Chinese waters, et cetera. Um, And then right now, given the strained relations between the US and Russia over the Ukraine invasion and US and China over the strategic competition, we're not expecting that Beijing or Moscow will be very helpful at the UN Security Council.
0: Next question. First of all, thank you for your comments so far, yeah. and going back to your earlier point about the discussion within South Korea about nuclear weapons, should they acquire these for themselves, obviously there are a great many obstacles that they would have to face within their own country and the international community to obtain those, but if they were to decide that, that was worth the cost what would a South Korean nuclear arsenal look like? How large would it be? What methods of deployment, et cetera?
1: Right, there's even amongst the nuclear advocates in South Korea, there's not a consensus as to why are they building them? Is it, um, well, you have to nuclearize in order to denuclearize. if, If South Korea goes nuclear or threatens to do so, then that would drive North Korea back to the table. Or China would be so nervous about having a nuclear power close to it that they would push Beijing be- or Pyongyang back to the table. Or is it, um, hey, America, you want us to have more bullets, tanks, you know, missile defenses to be a good ally? Why not more nuclear weapons? You know, shoulder to shoulder, the, increase the deterrence against North Korea, or if necessary, you know, defense, um, or to be more independent. Progressives tend to progressives or liberals tend to. Want to move away from the alliance uh, with the US. So would it be, oh, well, if they can have their own power, then they can downplay the alliance and what they see as an over-reliance on its relationship with Washington. So there's not an agreement. But to get there, there are a lot of impediments. So it would be um, they would have to either withdraw from or violate the non-proliferation treaty, which triggers a number of automatic actions. Uh, South Korea has no fissile, no radioactive material or fissile material of their own. North Korea has uranium deposits. South Korea doesn't. Um, they get all of their fissile material for their civilian reactors, which account for about thirty percent of South Korea's electricity. Uh, they all get, they get it from an international consortium called the Nuclear Suppliers Group. Under the the uh, NSG's rules, they automatically have to cut off North Korea from more distribution of fissile material Um, and they would also likely ask for whatever they provided back as well as the the material the production or the the gadgetry Um, also it would take some time for north korea to develop not only just one weapon but enough to be a deterrent against north korea so that would be however many years of you know, draining their reactors to get the fissile material and then you've got 30% less production, uh, electricity production for several years, which has a huge impact on their um, economy. Also, if they were to test, which you would think they would have to not only to prove a design, but to demonstrate a credible deterrence to North Korea, that would invoke the Glenn Amendment, which requires the U.S. to cut off economic and military assistance. Uh, There's no presidential waiver. It would require... joint or a majority in both houses of Congress. Um, It's just, there are a number of things that it it triggers. Um, So, and it would certainly cause strains with the U.S., et cetera. So to get to that point, there are a lot of costs. And then there could be a feeling in the U.S. of, all right, well, you're doing this because you don't trust us, (coughs) you know, you're on your own. I mean, would it be an alliance breaker that's a matter of debate. When they did have a covert program, the US curtailed it by saying that is an alliance breaker and then South Korea stopped. Would we break the alliance over it today? You can make arguments of why would we do that to ourselves, et cetera. you know, there's a lot of debate going on. But, um, you know, some have said, oh, they only need a few to be a deterrent, maybe a few on a submarine, which they don't have yet. Uh, Or others have said, no, we need as many as North Korea has. So it's an issue, like I said, that that has been out there for some time, but has now moved from the fringe to the mainstream. But as much as some of the folks who are advocating it are pushing for it, there's not a delineation of what is the purpose, how many, how would you get there? uh, Would those be integrated into the Combined Forces Command, which is the US-South Korea command, or would they be separate? And if they're under CFC, well, then they're under US control as well, because the commander of Combined Forces Command reports to the, mil- the military committee, which is the national command authority of both countries, including both presidents. So a lot of kind of what do you mean by this? Right now, it seems to be more of a I, I want this. And, and there are a number of, I'd say, four drivers for... It's one is the increasing North Korean threat. They're nervous, and there's less belief that we can get denuclearization through agreements. So it's like, look, as the numbers go up, they're more nervous. Two would be: Would would you Americans really defend us? Would you really trade Seattle for Seoul? Uh, you know, now that they can hit U.S. cities, would you really live up to your agreement? Uh, three would be. 2024 presidential election results. Um, fearful that uh, if Trump comes back in, that he would carry out his threats to remove U.S. forces uh, from South Korea and uh, other things. Uh, and four is sort of national pride or wounded pride of, you know, the U.K. and, and France have nukes. Why not us? Uh, there are five NATO nations that have dual-capable aircraft where they can deliver U.S. weapons, even though they have no control over the weapons themselves why if Belgium can do that why not us Uh, you accepted the uk you accepted france uh, you only punished india for violating the non-proliferation treaty for three years so we're a better ally than that you know so there's a lot of uh arguments to and fro it's it's a very complicated issue right now well
0: due to the time limit we'll just take one more question
1: Thank you for that very interesting and informative presentation. My question is, does North Korea have good reasons to worry? Are these threats or perceived threats likely real? Uh, the, the quick answer would be no. Um, but in 2017 and 2018, President Trump was, was threatening a, a preventive attack on North Korea. Now, the U.S. has always had Uh, on the books you know, retaliatory as well as a preemptive attack and the idea of if we have really good intelligence that North Korea or another nation is, we think about to attack us with nuclear weapons, we might do a preemptive attack. Now, what that means is some poor intel analyst is gonna go down to the White House and like, uh, Mr. President, we have satellite photos uh, that are showing North Korean missiles out in the field. Uh, We think they have nuclear warheads on them, uh, we think that it's not a, a demonstration or an exercise. We think the leadership intention is to attack the U.S. Over to you, sir. That's mm-hmm. you know, it's a pretty tough thing to do. Um, so, but during uh, 2017, 2018, Trump was saying that we we were moving to a preventive attack to prevent them from developing the ICBM capability that they already had. Uh, I would I traveled to Korea, and I, I was uh, asked to meet with a senior you know, presidential advisor who who told me as well as others, they are very scared. And they were saying things that indicated, I mean, in my view, I think we were closer to a conflict in 2017-2018 than in 1993-94 when I was the CIA branch chief, uh, when we weren't as close as it was later depicted to be, but things were very tense in 93-94. I think things were getting very tense in 2017, 2018. Um, That also made our South Korean allies very nervous. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why they pushed, or why they reached out to North Korea for negotiations. And then people would say, Trump's uh, administration folks would say, well, that's what made North Korea come to the table. Other, and then others would say, well, it didn't work out very well. So I I think things were, were tense. Other than that, Um, No, we're not about to attack them.